Welcome to the Pep Pop. <laughs> pep Pops Podcast. Bon baby and much. I'm sorry. Let's do that again. <laughs> Welcome to the Pep Talks Podcast brought to you by Arlington Community Schools. This is Janir Johnson. And I'm Erin Williams. You know, whenever we face loss, we experience grief. You know, our reactions are unique and individual, and we don't grieve in the same way. We're different. It could be a parent, um, a brother, a sister, or a friend. All of these relationships are unique. So today, I'm excited that we're going to talk about how to best support your child who has experienced grief, whether that be past or present, because students just don't leave that at the front door when they leave out for school. They bring it to school with them. Grief isn't an emotion that gets checked at the school door. It's something that a student is carrying around with them throughout the day. And they're feeling these heavy, heavy emotions that are related to grief. It's not something that we can see from the outside all of the time. Um, so I definitely think um, we've got a special treat here today. Miss uh, Kayla White is mm-hmm. here with Methodist Labonner, yes. and she's going to talk with us about um, grief, tips for parents, and then some supports that she has available. So here's our interview with Kayla White. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on um, our podcast today. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, so tell us um, who you are and what do you do? Yes. So my name is Kayla White and I am a child life specialist. I currently work for Methodist Alliance and specifically... I work with our Koala Kids Program, which is quality of of life for all, Koala with a Q. Basically, I work with children who are enrolled in hospice and palliative care. These kids usually come from either Labonner or St. Jude. Um, And then I also work with children of adults who are on adult hospice through Methodist. Mm -hmm. So if a child loses their parent, grandparent, sibling, and they were enrolled in hospice, they get in touch with me and I kind of get to help them through that. And I also have the opportunity to work with kids in the community. Sometimes we get community referrals and I just kind of jump in from there. And then a new thing, I am also our Camp Bravehearts coordinator. So that happens every summer. Wow, you do a lot. Yes, you do. (laughs) Wow. You said child life specialist. I studied child life specialist for um, a season. So can you tell us a little bit more about what a child life specialist does? So I love what I do. It is definitely very different. So it's cool to have someone here that knows kind of what I'm talking about. My background is in development. So my undergrad degree is in psychology with an emphasis in child development. And then my master's degree is in human development and family science. So kind of the whole thought behind child life is that things are going to happen in a kid's life that are going to be very difficult. It may be hospitalization, which is where a lot of child life specialists are, but that's kind of starting to change. So I work in hospice and in the community. There are child life specialists all over the country now, which is really cool. It's kind of starting to branch out because our whole point is to help kids reach developmental milestones, even when they're dealing with stressors. So teaching coping skills, education about whatever might be going on. Like in the hospital, it could be education about the diagnosis, preparation for 
whatever procedure is going to happen. Mm-hmm. For me, it's often education about end of life, what that's going to look like for the patient or their sibling or their parents, education on what a funeral will look like, because honestly, a lot of kids just don't know or they've never been and families aren't sure if they should let their kids be in that environment or Mm -hmm. not so it's a very broad spectrum of things but mostly just helping ensure that kids are still developing appropriately and are given the tools to know how to cope with every situation Mm -hmm. that they're in that is such an important role and it sounds like you are working with um is it young children all the way to teenagers, or do you have an age range that you work with? All of them, actually. So in the medical world, we typically stop pediatric care at 22. Okay. So oh. I, my patients are usually underneath that age. And of course, like what I do for a baby, it's all very based on like ages and stages and Erickson and all of those fun mm-hmm. things. But um, I also work very, very closely with parents in this role, just because it's hard to be in a situation that you've never been in Absolutely. when your kid is sick. Mm-hmm. So you said that you work with parents mm-hmm. um, and supporting parents with children that are about to experience loss. So what does that look like when you're talking with a parent? So I often try to prepare them for what their children are going to go through. And of course, again, this looks different depending on the age of the kid. If they have a six-year-old, who's going to lose a sibling. We talk a lot about the language that should be used when a death occurs. People are very apt to not say the word dying or Mm. dead. Mm -hmm. It it is a very jarring word, and I understand that. I encourage families to use that terminology. It's very confusing for children, specifically children like under the age of nine, to hear things like went to sleep, passed, Right. Passed away, went to heaven because they don't understand. Like if you hear that your grandma will never wake up again, then you're terrified to go to bed at night. That's a whole new problem. So I do talk to families about like religious beliefs and things like that. Just so I have a full picture going in because that very much shapes how we feel about death. Absolutely. But I completely encourage them to talk about like the scientific piece first. Mm hmm. Yeah, just using that appropriate language so everybody's on the same page and we can help children understand what is happening. Now, a lot of children don't have the advantage of of knowing someone um, is about to die. A lot of children, you know, grief and loss, that's something that comes comes on them and it's very unexpected. So let's talk about what grief looks like. Let's start with younger children. What does grief and loss look like for younger children based on your experience and your work day in and day out? So with young kids, there tends to be a lot of fantasy thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, did I do something that caused this? Like, my mom got in an accident. Is it because of something I did? Or did I make them sick? And then can I get sick in that way? Will I die? That is really, really hard. Yeah. Constantly talking to them in a very concrete language helps with that. Like, no, this is not your fault. Nothing could have changed this. Um, It's also really strange because kids don't get a full concept of death until they're eight. So there are four things that kind of play into that. But they often think that death is reversible when they're little. They don't realize that everyone is going to die or they've never experience death and then it comes on really sudden in that way also 
it is definitely a trend that even if families know that a death might be coming, they tend not to tell their little kids. Right. And then it's a surprise, even if it wasn't a surprise, which does do more harm than good. You just said two two things that I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about and talk with you about. Um, one of the things about parents not preparing their child if they know, what would you recommend um, for parents if they know that a parent is very sick and they may be about to die? I very much always push for parents to tell their kids the truth in a developmentally appropriate way. Mm-hmm. So that can be hard, but... Saying things like, you know, mom is really sick on day one and then advancing that information so that they have a full picture, but that it's not overly terrifying. So we don't have to give like, you know, a cancer diagnosis or a very medical term to explain that the body's not going to get better. Just saying things like, you know, mom or dad is really sick and what do you need to do like what does your body need to do to keep you alive well your heart needs to be you need to be Mm -hmm. able to breathe your brain has to do all those things and then say it's like brain cancer just as an example explaining that well mom's brain is really sick Mm -hmm. and so her body's not going to be able to do those things anymore and what happens when your body can't do things anymore and letting the kid answer because typically they do have an idea Kids are introduced to death really young, even in things like Disney movies. Like Mm -hmm. every Disney movie you can think of, someone dies. Or they've had a pet that's passed away. And that kind of scaffolds that information so that they know what's going to happen. But it's not terrifying and it's not sudden. That is a very good point. And I think that's very helpful for parents is talking on an age-appropriate level um, and discussing these very real things. And it sounds like you're talking about with the younger children, very concrete information is important. The second thing I wanted to ask you about, you described blame and maybe like a survivor's guilt. Is that pretty common? Very. Kids that little have, and even teenagers, honestly, have this like mindset Teenagers even more, really, that like the world kind of revolves around them. It's just a developmental thing that everyone goes through. Like everything is about me. I'm invincible. And sometimes that means everything is my fault. So like that fantasy thinking that we have more control over our situation than we really do definitely plays into like a survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we see that at the schools. Um, A lot of students that I meet with at um, elementary, but really middle too, talk about, you know, what could I have done? What could I have changed? Um, They really do associate these things, kind of like what you said with control, um, Mm -hmm. where they're thinking they have more control over the situation than they do. That's very, very helpful. We talked about younger children. What about older children and teens? So some of the things are similar in that, like, that blame can show up, but usually for, like, a different reason. Like, they really do think, like, if they had been there, maybe they could have done something to stop it. It's not a hero complex, but it's also more like that invincibility situation. And then with teenagers, the the way they express their emotions is very different than mm-hmm. little kids. Like, little kids are more apt to cry. Yeah. Teenagers, especially boys, are yep. more apt to get angry. Yep. And not know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. Figuring out coping skills for that age group 
is the best thing that I can recommend because often like they haven't had to figure it out yet or they don't know how or it's it's not role modeled well in their home or in their community and they're not old enough to like figure it out on their own to like go get a gym membership or you know, drive around all night listening to music, which are things that adults do to cope with things, but they just can't yet. Mm-hmm. I recommend to those parents to start modeling the behaviors, including like a lot of families say to me, well, I can't cry in front of my kid. I have to be strong in front of my kid. It is completely healthy and normal to show emotions in front of your child. Like, I'm so glad there's you said no that. bad emotion. Mm-hmm. So I really stress that. When you're talking about older children and teens developing coping skills, I want to go back to that because when we're talking about our younger students, a lot of times we do, we'll do grief kits and we'll do, um, you know, they'll have little boxes of memories and they can color and write and all of those expressive things really do help from what I see. But with the older kids, what typically do you find to be the most helpful when they're developing coping skills? What are those preferred coping skills? I do think age and gender both play a part. Also just personality. Like I usually start with talking to them about what my coping skills are. And I'm really honest, you know, like I kickbox, I go get a cheeseburger from McDonald's, I take a bath, you know, like try to give them like a wide array of things that you do and explain that like one coping skill is not going to work all the time. I've seen an uptick of lots of teenagers saying that for them, social media is the way that they cope. That is fine. But I do caution them that like if they're getting validation from posting their dead loved one on TikTok or Instagram, but only if they get a certain number of likes that they need to be careful about doing that because they may not get the interaction that they want, which could make them feel worse. Mm -hmm. Adding to that, what you're talking about is not getting that affirmation from peers. We see that a lot at the, um, especially the middle school, where a student wants to share. They feel ready to share with their peers about what happened to them. Um, They lost a parent. And a lot of times their peers don't respond in the way that they're hoping. And that leads to a lot of disappointment and frustration and just feeling like isolated. Mm Mm-hmm. That is so hard. And I think it sounds like y'all are doing a great job. And if you could provide a way for like peer-to-peer support when a situation like that happens, like, you know, a buddy, another kid who's gone through the same thing, there's just so much validation that we get from Mm -hmm. being in the room with someone who's like us. But it's hard when your friends don't get it or their like experiences that their 90-year-old grandmother died and they're like, yeah, but like that happens, you know, it's not the same. And that is really disappointing. I think the peer-to-peer thing would be really helpful. And also maybe telling those kids that like journaling or talking to their parent who's experienced the same thing, or if they have a sibling that's experienced the same thing. Sometimes we have to get our validation from people who are going to be a little bit more understanding because they've been there. I like that. We've done some small groups over at elementary level for kids that have experienced loss. And they really do open up a whole lot more. And they are more receptive to teaching coping skills because they're kind of, I don't know, they they get to see each other and um, seeing how the other person responds. And you can teach a group some coping skills and they're practicing with each other. And I I really enjoy that. I know you get to see that, too. So (laughs) you said something earlier. You said you work the Camp Bray part. 
we have had a lot of students that go to Camp Braveheart and they come back and they tell us they love it. So tell us about Camp Braveheart. Camp Braveheart happens every year in the summer. It is for children ages 6 to 16 who've experienced any kind of death loss. Also, in the past, it has been a family grief camp, meaning caregivers could come, and we are going to bring back that component this year so parents can come too, and they'll be in a separate group with things appropriate for them. Camp is a lot of things. It is a grief camp, but first and foremost, it is a camp. So we do fun things too, like they get to zip line and they get to rock climb mm-hmm. and there's a ropes course and we do all these fun activities. But we also talk about some of the hard stuff. We spend a lot of time on emotions and we do books about emotions. There's one called In My Heart that I really love and we discuss what they felt at the time of the loss, what they feel now. We talk about coping. Those skills look different for the little kids versus the older ones. We provide um, coping kits with like stress balls and Mm -hmm. fidget spinners and different ideas about things they can do. And then we also talk about memorializing your loved one and how grief can look different for different people. So we do a memory box activity like the one that you mentioned in your groups. We um, read a couple books that go along with that. There's one called If Nathan Were Here. That's incredible. Very hard to get through. Most of the people who teach it do cry through it, and that's okay. Mm. And we do one called Memory Box. Um, And then we also do invisible string and i recommend this book for all kinds of situations it is not just a book about death it is a book about loving people even when they're not with us so it talks about going to school and being away from your parents it talks about deployment it does talk about death it's an incredible book and it opens up a lot of conversation my favorite thing about camp is that these kids just seem to learn so much and it is really heavy we do a memorial celebration of life at the end of the week but they also leave with friends that they didn't have before and and understanding that they're not the only person that has lost someone and an ability to talk through their feelings and really that's the whole point so kayla what are your top tips for a parent um, who has a child who's experienced loss let them feel their emotions help them understand what they are and be able to verbalize them. Like it is very easy when you're little and you only know so many words to get tripped up and like, I'm angry when really you're frustrated or really you're sad and it just appears as anger. Um, So I think labeling emotions and letting kids feel those is really important. Providing the space to heal. So that kind of goes along with modeling those coping mechanisms, but like, there may be days that like they they can't go to school or days that extracurricular activities are just too much and they need to go home right after school. And that's okay. Like it doesn't need to be a pattern because another thing is it's really helpful to keep a schedule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's also good to have wiggle room. Like, you know, if if I lost someone, I might need a day off. And expecting an eleven year old to walk right back into the classroom two days after a funeral when they've never experienced death before could be too much much. Mm -hmm. depending on the kid. And I would say lastly, like letting your child kind of take the lead on the flip side. I have had kids say to me, like, I will go to the funeral, but I want to go back to school immediately after I I want to see my friends. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, Mm -hmm. 
we see that a lot. I was about to uh-huh. ask you about that. You think that's okay yeah. for them to just go back to school? I'm sure you do see it a lot. And kids crave routine. Yes. They love yes. it. And being around the people who, especially in those preteen years when your parents are kind of like aliens, like right, right. you want to be around the people who you feel like understand you. Absolutely. And it's kind of what you said earlier about routine is is getting away. You know, obviously they're still feeling the things that they're feeling when you experience loss, but when they're at school, they kind of they kind of can get those distractions and get that routine where things do feel a little more normal. And that exactly. can definitely be a healthy thing for a season. Oh, um, another tip. This one, okay. So I'm sure you guys have heard of the Kubler-Ross model. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot a lot of people love to talk about stages of grief. The thing is, that is for the person who is going to pass away rather than the people who are left to grieve. So there's no linear model. And I think that it's really important to remember that. Like, you may feel all those things. I'm not saying you won't. But the idea that you'll feel like anger and then sadness and that that is actually written for the person who is going to be dying. Mm-hmm rather than the kid or the adult who just experienced the loss of someone close to them. So not expecting people to like stay on a particular path and grieve in like this one linear way is really important. I am so glad you said that. I, it's the five stages of grief that you're talking about where yes. um, <laughs> they go through the, the five different emotions and feelings and stages Um, And then the last one is acceptance. Mm -hmm. And so many times it's been taught, this is what we feel when we're grieving. And truthfully, there's just so many more emotions that a person feels. um, And there's so many, I would not say the word stages, but there is just a a different process for everybody. It's me. Uh, It's Janir. I have a question. (laughs) I've been caught up in listening to you all chat, but um, do you think there's a timeline for grief? I don't. Technically, they say if it's been a year after that, it's quote unquote complicated grief. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't love that terminology. I think there are always going to be times that it's harder. Anniversaries, birthdays, right. things like that are always going to kind of creep up on you. And that's true for kids, too. And kids process differently than adults do. Like, it seems to baffle a lot of parents that a kid will be really upset, ask a really hard question, and then five minutes later, they're painting or they're playing with something, and it's like that question never happened, never happened. Mm-hmm. and the parent's still reeling from it. Kids come and go from things a lot, so I don't even think that that year measurement makes sense if you're not, like, steadily dealing with the problem. Right. So, no, I don't think there is. I do think, though, like, We often see kids regress or get in more trouble than they normally would after a significant death loss. But that behavior has to stop at some point. Like if that is still happening a year out, then there is probably another issue at play and they may need more counseling. But I don't think there's a time. And I totally agree. I tend to explain to students um, and parents, I give the analogy, I use a lot of analogies and I usually say it's kind of like a ping ping pong machine. Um, mm-hmm. And you pull that lever and the ball goes ding, ding, ding. So I think that you can hit any one of those stages of grief at any point, at any time, with any level of intensity, um, with the intensity, like you said, growing around anniversaries and, you know, reminder songs or smells or things like that. So 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that is that is so helpful to know and be aware of as well. Um, well, Kayla, thank you so much. This has been an awesome episode with with lots of helpful information. I learned a lot mm, here me today. Too. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm so glad that y'all are there for those students. That's awesome. <laughs> we are glad that we have this community resource um, and that you're doing what you're doing. And it sounds like you you love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. What an excellent reminder that, you know, we don't have control of these situations. And just, I think it's so important to remind our students, this is not your fault. And you don't have as much control as you think. Mm -hmm. Um, Which sounds harsh, but in those moments, that's what's needed. What an excellent reminder, the timeline of grief. There is no timeline. There's no normal. There's no getting over it. As time goes on, maybe those feelings, like you were talking about last week, maybe those feelings do subside. It's okay to feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, but grief is a lifelong journey. It is. You ever been uh, bitten or stung by a bee or a mosquito? Oh, all the time. All the time. So you remember where you got bit at, where those bites were? Like, I got bit last summer right here, and oh my gosh, it itched where it hurt so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I kind of explain to students, too, when, they're, when we come in and we're talking about grief. Um, is that it's kind of like a bee sting or a mosquito bite. Like that first initial bite and that sting, it's like, ouch. You know, it, it really hurts and you it, it hurts bad. And it's like it's unsuitable. There's no consolation for it. Um, but then as time passes on, um, you know, the itch kind of kind of dissipates. The, the wound will kind of heal up. But you never will forget that summer. I got stung on my finger right here. I'll never forget it was right here. Um, and that's how grief is. You're never going to forget it was right there and it hurt so bad. The intensity will die down, right. but you're never going to forget. Right. Well, what an amazing episode and interview with Miss Kayla and talking about um, just the different supports. We are going to have so many resources in our show notes. So mm-hmm. feel free to check that out. Um, I will put the books in there. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. And next week. Next week, we have a very special guest, Miss Dana Viox, um, and she is with our central office staff. And we're going to be talking about um, mental health and exercise. All right. Thank you for joining us. Till next time. Mm